Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We are in chapter three of the book of Exodus, the book of Shemot. Um, I believe we dealt with the first verse, but we didn't look at the Rashi on it yet, or at least we didn't finish the Rashi. Um, not everything we looked at the Rashi at all. So let's get uh, moving by um, moving into the verse. Umoshe uh, and Moses, after the that five or six verse interlude at the end of the book of, end of chapter two was over. Oh, by the way, Boker Tov, anyone or who's watching on, on Facebook. Um, now we come back to where we had been um, towards the end of the second book of second chapter of Shmuel before the interlude of the crying out and the groaning and the shrying of the Israelites. He was shepherding the sheep of Yitro, his father-in-law, Kohen Midian, the priest of Midian. I'm translating it just as simply as possible, though we know we could go deeper into each word. He drove the sheep. We still can't translate it. Achar Hamidbar, beyond the wilderness, to the edge of the wilderness, next to the wilderness, instead of the wilderness, after the wilderness. Vayavo, and he came, El Har Elohim, to the mountain of God, Choreva, to Chorev. So Chorevad is not um, uh, the synonym for Har Elohim. It is Chorev is, and Choreva means to Chorev. Okay. And we threw out a bunch of questions on this verse, which uh, we spent some time in. We had not gotten to the Rashi. We wanted to know, is Ro'ed there a verb or is it a noun? Is it that he was a shepherd or is he shepherding? Uh, not that it makes that much of a difference, but as we try to understand things precisely. We focused on Vayin Hag, and at least one of you shared um, some notion of, of, of the realia of being a shepherd in different cultures. And are you driving from the back or are you leading from the front, your sheep? We talked about all the different things that Achar could mean. Did he go to the edge of the wilderness where there was fo- foliage, a normal thing? Did he go farther than he needed to go? Is God in charge of where he's going? And we also asked the question, this mountain, which is called Chorev, what earned it yet the moniker of Har Elohim? Those of us who know the story, because we know what's about to happen, and we know that what's about to happen is going to happen in the same place that other big things are about to happen. So we know why later on this would be called Har Elohim. But what is it, unless you want to take a, like a, a seamstress's understanding of the, of the editing of the Torah, which you can, which is that it's called Har Elohim now, kind of because they, they came back and they changed the name of it in this scene because of what happens later. You have to, if you're not willing to go there, you have to ask yourself that question. Why is it called Har Elohim now? Okay. Um, Rick, do you have a question? Then we're going to look at the Rashi. I was going to answer your question. Ah, okay. Um, well, um, we all know you, you chose a Kohen, and uh, I've read stories that um, there's, high, there's gods at high places everywhere. Greeks had Olympus, so, so the people in that area, that was where they, uh, that was where they went. And um, there's another place called El Ale, with an Aleph and a Lamed. Um, it's one of the places listed later, but um, I've always been interested in high places and where the gods supposed to meet the gods there interesting so, so a way of reading reading the text and the reference to harlohim not as a reference to 
our Elohim. Yeah. This was a local God mountain. Interesting. Just like Abraham uh, um, and um, before, they, they, they changed all the altars, the, the Canaanite ones, to uh, Israelite ones. They, they appropriate El and all that. Good. Good. Okay, yes, Tobas, your hand up? Uh, yeah, on the same point, uh, I seem to remember having heard that uh, also the explanation that this was the mountain that was in the vicinity of where Yitro was, and we know Yitro is distinguished as being somehow a priest of, I mean, uh, being monotheistic, of, of having separated himself, and so could it be associated with his presence, or his presence has to do with that mountain. There's a connection there. The, the two, those two comments are really lovely, particularly as we're about to contrast it with how Rashi reads it. Rashi is going to read it very, um, I don't know, particularist or jingoistic even. And these reads are, are trying to understand the notion of the Torah's naming a mountain as a Har Elohim, totally separate from, from the revelation of Mount Sinai, which is where they, the received tradition goes. Wonderful. Okay, um, let's see. Uh, Andrew, do you want to read the Rashi? Sure. Achar um, Hamidbar, Lihitrachek Min Hagezel, to go afar from, I guess it would be translated as what could be from, from what is stolen. Right. Gezel is thought to be a, 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 a subcategory of, of stealing. Sometimes it's understood to be swindling, or sometimes understood to be a violent stealing. But it's it's taking things that don't belong to you. Okay. Shalom uh, Yerubis Dodacherim, so that he wouldn't shepherd in other in in other fields. Okay. So Rashi here, quoting from Shmot Rabbah, um, trying to deal with the question we dealt with last week: What does Achar mean? From let, let's figure out his answer, and then from his answer, let's try to intuit what he thinks the word Achar what the word achar means from his answer. What's his answer? What's his answer, quote, um, pulling from the Midrash? Andrew or anyone, put it into your own words. He's going to, he, he, uh, achar would mean away from other properties, uh, uh, uncharted territory. Very good, right? So one of, the, one of the ways that we were looking at achar last week was maybe achar amidbar, is exactly the place you go when you're a shepherd because the midbar might be barren, but beyond the midbar could be a forest or it could be grazing fields. Rashi says almost the opposite, right? He, you should go to the midbar. He went to the edge of the midbar. Why? Lest by going where other shepherds bring their flock, his sheep, or in this case, Yitro's sheep, uh, end up taking food that does not belong to them. Um, this Midrash in Shemot Rabbah is kind of evocative of a lot of Talmudic material um, regarding neighborly obligations, right? So we, we, because we, for the most part, live our civic lives not according to Jewish law, we may hopefully infused by Jewish values, not by Jewish law. There are whole sections of the Talmud, whole sections of the Shulchan Aruch um, that we don't pay a whole lot of attention to. But, you know, Bava Batra, Bava Metziah, and Bava Kama, all dealing with with boundary issues and, and noise pollution and, um, and your ox falling into my pit, uh, you know, related to many of the chapters of Torah that we spend time reading have to do with 
what are your religious obligations in commerce and your religious obligations, even as a shepherd. And there's material about what happens when your sheep is grazing on Goldberg's field, right? And eating this num this amount of, of acreage or obviously not the word acre, this amount of food belonging to someone else in that field, what is the compensation? So the Midrash kind of imagines Moshe as it loves to do as observing Torah law, observing Talmudic law, even before Torah was given, right? And we don't want to imagine Moshe as the type of shepherd who would allow his sheep to chew on grass that didn't belong to them. So he didn't go to the easiest place. He didn't go to the closest place. He went achar, way, way, way beyond the wilderness. So Rashi is reading achar, not as, um, you know, next to, but way on the edge of, and he's reading Moshe in this generous way. Let's pause there. What are, what are your reactions to this? How does it change the story? How, how do the authors of the Midrash and or Rashi want us to think of Moshe and what's about to happen differently as a result of reading this verse this way, which it does not have to read this way? Thoughts or reactions? Uh, Tova? Um, okay. Well, it, it seems to be creating him as, or representing him as a man of... of, of remarkable virtue and conscientiousness as a way of making him fit for the encounter he's about to have to justify the fact that, or to um, make the fact that he's now going to be approached by God in this way, uh, understandable. Great. Right. So um, the, he, he, he's about to be at the spot, which we know is going to be the spot at which these laws are revealed and he's already following them. Right? He's, he's already following them, even though they're not even his sheep. So, and we all know the well-known Midrash that we'll, we'll get to a little bit of following the little sheep, right? The, the stray right. sheep that gets him there. So that Midrash presents Moshe as a compassionate man. And this Midrash po- um, paints him as a supremely ethical man before he is given the job that we know he's about to get. Barbara, Diane Larry, and then Barry. And just to add to what Tova said, the word honesty, that he was a totally honest person who would probably be unable to lie and wanted to make sure that he didn't have to deal with problems with people accusing him of something. And he didn't know how to explain that that he hadn't done anything and that he was pure, purely honest. So just getting away, you don't have to ever worry about dealing with people and lying or anything like that. Right. And it's the type of honesty that is the most admirable because it's the, mo- it's the one most easy to fall down on. And that is when no one else is watching. Right. So if you think about, I don't know that much about shepherding, but um, in the era, era before video cameras, probably one of the easiest transgressions to make is to not care that much if your sheep cross over the boundary into the next person's field and eat a little bit of grass. Right. So it, it's, it's like um, honesty in the extreme, right? Righteousness at the highest level. Um, okay, uh, Diane, Larry, then Barry. So if, if you think about Moshe, who is in a while about to shepherd the people of Israel, and this is, look at this as a, as a parallel. Here he knows how to lead the sheep away from private property that they should not graze in. He's going to, for 40 years, shepherd the, the Am Yisrael in places that 
are okay to graze in. Really nice, particularly as you think about the scene where um, Moshe and his and his group have to request passage through the lands of Og Melech Habashan, right? Um, and uh, the, the, the interactions that the people of Israel have as they're going through the desert, requesting permission to enter. Now, one could be cynical and say they requested permission until they got to the edge of Canaan, and then they did not ask the Canaanites or the Jebusites or the Hittites or the Hivites about their impression of our arriving there. But until then, while they're traveling the desert, Moshe, right, leads the Israelites exactly as he's leading the sheep. That's a wonderful association. Uh, I just want to add that all this hagiography is really making me crazy. <laughs> okay. It, it, it just, it's along the lines of what we sometimes tend to push back about, about, about in terms of making our, our heroes pure and only righteous and all that. I have no, I have no evidence. I'm just, just making a comment. Yeah, yep. Um, we we haven't invoked him for a while. So if Arthur Stern would hear, he would say, "This is crazy." He just <laughs> all it means is that he went to that side of the of the wilderness. He was not following Shulchan Aruch. He was just being a shepherd. Um, Barry Sue Marshall. Well, I, I want to kind of turn this thing on its head. Uh, I'm going back to um, the experience at the well when Moshe arrived and uh, that uh, uh, his father-in-law being on the outs uh, of the community because going monotheistic and the others um, having a bad attitude or uh, towards uh, his father-in-law. And so he wants to take the sheep uh, to be far away from um, them. Uh, and and the, uh, the, the the theft uh, would be what what they would possibly take from uh, um, his father-in-law's sheep. So he's he's protecting them by taking them uh, away from um, those. Great, Barry, Sue, and then Marshall. Yep, I I want to um, uh, thank Larry for hagiography. I got to use that a few times in the next couple of days. <laughs> I like that word. <laughs> Um, uh, thinking about Arthur and, and kind of where Moshe has been, I, you know, he could just be trying to keep his nose really, really clean because he got, he, 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 he got, um, implicated and he had to, to flee fair, um, um, Egypt because things got all twisted and, and mightily messed up. Um, and he had to run and he might be trying to keep his reputation much cleaner and stay out of trouble. This is the witness protection program understanding of the verse, right? That when you're when you're when you're already in trouble from the big authorities, you don't run a single a single stoplight. That's interesting, right? Because we we have explored that the Peshat has explored and the Midrash has explored what animates Moshe's ethics and how he justifies, um, you know, sometimes borderline cases already for how you're supposed to act in a situation. So here. He's, he's, he's coloring within the lines. That's a, lo- that's a lovely read. Thank you, Sue. Marshall? Well, I'm going to actually bring in the Midrash, which is quite delightful. Uh, should I do it both in Hebrew and in English or just give a translation? Your, your call. You have the mic. Okay. I'll, since the Hebrew is so nice, I'll read it in Hebrew first, and I'll translate verse by verse. So this is from Shemot Rabbah, and it says, Ein HaKadosh Baruch Hu no tengedula le'adam ajabad kehu bedavar katan. 
God does not give greatness to a man until he examines him in a small thing, and afterwards he elevates him to greatness. Behold, there are two great people in the world, who examine them in a small thing. And they were found to be uh, faithful, and he elevated to greatness. But Dr. David Batson, he examined David regarding the flock. So here's our gezel thing. And he did not lead them except through the wilderness in order to distance them from the opportunity for, for stealing. And similarly, Grand Modus, as it says, we recognize this verse by Inhagatatson Achar Hamidbar. Min HaGezel, to take them away from stealing. And they took God to, uh, God took them to pasture Israel. Shunei Amars, it states in Tehillim, uh, 7721, You led your people like a flock, by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So here we have a comparison of the way God first examined David, first examined Moses, then David, before elevating them to greatness. Wonderful. I, lo- I love the notion of um, that, 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 the, that the highest elevations and the greatest monikers of greatness come through the, 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 the smallest acts of, of righteousness and rectitude. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of hagiography, because I, I, I really appreciate that point, Larry, and it's worth bringing up all the time as we study Chazal and their understanding, and in the same way that it's important to raise up their anti-hagiography when it comes to the non-Jews and how they um, characterize them, I want us to remember occasionally that this is Sermonica, right? That, that, the, that we can focus on the hagiography of Moshe and say, this is a stretch and then some. Or we can say, what a Dvar Torah, right? It, it, I would like to think that, that, you would, that all of you would want to hear a rabbi, me or someone else, give a Dvar Torah showing how this kind of behavior when you're a shepherd or an accountant or a lawyer or whatever is the behavior we should be aspiring to. And the best way to give that Dvar Torah is to um, imagine, create, manufacture heroes who do that, right? Not only heroes who are you know, King David-like, but heroes who do that, shepherd heroes, right? Shepherding heroes, shepherding your flock at the edge so that they don't eat a single uh, blade of grass uh, of another. So in order to get there, you've got to be fantastical. But the Dvar Torah is a wonderful Dvar Torah. Who, who in our community, including myself, doesn't need to hear that Dvar Torah, oh, I don't know, every single day, every single day. But the, the pathway is hagiographical, you're right. Um, okay. Were there others on this Rashi before we look at the second Rashi? Okay. Andrew, you're back up. All right. Uh, al har elohim Al-Shem Ha-Atid. That the, uh, it it refers to the name, uh, it refers to what's going to happen in the future. Right. You almost hear in Rashi's comment here saying, however you're going to read this verse, don't read it the way uh, Rick and Tover were suggesting it, right? Don't think for a second 
that there's anything Elohim-ish about this Har related to Yitro or anything that was happening up until now. It's that the, God is a prescient God and the Torah is a prescient text. And therefore don't think of it odd as the Torah already having a name in place for what's going to happen. And Rashi saying, don't think either that it's an editorial decision that once revelation happened, the editor, as it were, came back and said, Oh, you know what? Why don't the first time we mention this mountain and we'll give it a name that's eventually that's going to, it's going to have, it's more of a, of a prophetic uh, moniker that, that, the text already knows what's going to happen there. The text already endows this spot with a certain amount of divine significance. Alhar ha'atid. So if prescience isn't odd, are there other examples in the Torah of references like this? I'm curious. Uh, place names, you mean? Yeah. Or, or it doesn't even necessarily need to be place names. Any sort of development where... It's ununderstandable unless you know what's going to happen in the future, and then the reference somehow makes sense. Right. Um, it's not exactly what you're asking, but there are a couple of verses that Ibn Ezra, in his commentary, talks about almost like wink-wink to the modern reader who we couldn't have anticipated. These are the verses that make me wonder how this whole thing got stitched together. And some of the examples are small, like when the Torah says, V'ha'aknani az ba'aretz that the Canaanites were already then in the land. The Oz seems to suggest that the sentence was written later on and that it's looking backwards as opposed to the text being written in the moment that it's happening. Um, so it's not, the, it's not the exact same situation. That's the, that's the text showing its scenes and, sh- and, sh- and showing how in the final editor- editorial completion, whether by the Holy One or by those inspired by the Holy One, there were remnants, there were vestiges of portions of it that were written over, over different times. I can't think off the top of my head of a, of a great example of what you're asking about, which is um, a thing that the Torah could only have known either through editorial redaction or through prophecy. I'm sure there are examples, but it's not coming to me right now. I'll see if my brain can come up with one as we're continuing the conversation. Uh, Rick and then Barry. Um, uh, trope, Josh little bit of a trope josh rabbit hole okay and it fits right what we're talking about i think i don't know this is really weird but um i looked at the two tavirs sir that's pretty rare you don't have two tavirs in a row the thing that triggers my mind is back in august you were doing a mincha thing and there were two tavirs it took me a while to find it it was in Akev, where it was Adonai Elohecha Zeh, and you said, "Is is Zeh an important word? What does it matter? What it has?" Okay, so there it was forty years in the desert, forty years in the wilderness. This is uh, Akev uh, chapter eight, verse two, and I wrote to you about it in the summer after the Mincha. Okay, so there's two Tavirs, and it's about wandering okay so then i said to myself okay where's the first one before this there's no other ones in Shmot. i go back the first one that it ever happened well the first one up i didn't go that far is abraham okay when he's dwelling it's in lech lecha uh, chap uh, uh, verse 18 what is this uh 13 it's 13 18 so when he first comes to, or at this time, he, he's, he's dwelling. So 
it's like, to me, it's like, it's echoing uh, back and forth. Oh, and there's the third one, um, right in front of Va'echanan. Um, Rick, did you go af- the word and check, like from the beginning, like yeah, the places that Tavir follows a Tavir? Yeah. Um, crazy for trope that I am, I have a tikkun in front of me that I colored it all in. It took wow. me a lot of years to do, but it's real easy to see the trope if you're just looking for one color. Wow. I'll show it. I mean, it's right here. But anyway, Vayechanan, uh, after the Shema, the Hayah, the next paragraph. Nishba, I swore it, Lavotecha, Le'avraham. It's there again. So Abraham gets the two Tavir treatment, and here's Moses uh, fulfilling the uh, prophecy, I guess, and uh, that he's going to lead us out, mm. and he gets two Tavirs. Mm. <laughs> so that all just came together. I, I like the outcome of that, and I'm amazed by the process. Of that. <laughs> Bravo! Thank you. Before um, I call him Barry, I want to. This is another example of, of, of what Rashi doing all the time, which is when he is culling from a midrash, as as Marshall just showed us in the previous comment. He's he's um, turning it into a synopsis, and and he's he's taking out some a lot of the layers of the drash because he's not writing midrash. Midrash is, is kind of more expansive. He's distilling it into its core. So the midrash from which this comment comes, Al-Hara Al-Shem Hatid, which also is from Shmot Rabbah, focuses on the Elohim part and says something very interesting. Um, it's upon that mountain that the Torah will be given. V'sham yikablu at Yisrael, and there Israel will receive et Elohuto, God's divinity. Right. So the reason why the midrash is focusing on that is that it says Har Elohim and not Har Adonai, because Elohim not only is God's name, but Elohut is 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 the divinity of God. So it's it's named not only for for God God's self, but it's named for the moment where God's godness, God's divinity will be received and accepted, right? Think ahead to what's going to happen and not 70 Shema, right? God could have revealed God's self and the people could have said, no, thanks. Don't want it. So God only becomes Elohim, only really becomes Elohim when people accept the Elohut of God. So Har Elohim doesn't just mean the mountain nicknamed after God because God lives there, but it's nicknamed in advance of what's going to happen because God only becomes God as it were, when B'nai Israel says, yes, I receive you as Elohim. I receive your Elohut. Therefore, Har Elohim. Barry. Well, first of all, Yashikar to Rick um, and talk about uh, prescience. Um, you, you, you got prescience in the trope uh, research. That was great. Uh, going back to Andrew also on the comment of prescience. Uh, as I recall, uh, where, where Jacob laid his head down in the latter dream, uh, becomes uh, the, where the Temple Mount is, becomes. Okay. Uh, so uh, 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 going back now, where is Moshe with the, with the sheep? It, it, it's, a, it's an element of separation. Uh, always in any time when God is having an uh, interaction with us, with the people, it, it's preceded by some element of, of, of separation. Moshe separates himself from civilized society in Egypt and, and leaves. He's, he's separating himself from the local uh, uh, environment with his sheep because there's going to be an interaction. So it's, it's an element of, of elevation 
He's geologically he's he's elevated, and he's separated, and, and that that's that's prescient uh, to what's going to happen next. Thanks, Barry. Thank you. Um, let's move to verse two. Unless there are any um, any people holding us back, going once, going twice. Uh, Carol, do you want to read verse two? Vayera. Um, thank you for calling me on me. I'm actually waiting for a plumber to show up any minute, so I think best not to take this one. Okay. Although we could make a plumbing drush somehow between, uh, you know, a shepherd and a plumber showed up on the edge of the of the of the wilderness. Diane, Larry, were you calling? I was asking a, a question. You might have uh, you might have already covered it. I, I'm curious about the difference between Ha Elohim and Elohim. Did I miss it when we talked about it? Uh, you didn't miss it. We didn't talk about it. So uh, I, I missed something in my reading because I thought to myself, gee, this is important. And then I'm trying, not successfully, to do a search on Safari. And not like Rick, I'm not <laughs> color coding my tikkun. But, um, and I may be mistaken, but it seems uh, because my Safari is, is wonky right now. Elohim seems to be even more um, common than just Elohim. And there's lots of occurrences of Ha Elohim. I think there's 1,098 in the in um, in, in in the Torah. If I if I have that count correct, I may be wrong. Is there any is there any commentary on the difference between the two? Uh, I will tell you, I have not thought about that question. So that's a really interesting thing to think about. Now you made me feel really good if you hadn't thought about it. No, I had not. I've not it thought just, about it either on this verse or in general. Um, it just strikes me that since some of you know that I'm really hung up on, on God talk and the difference between the general generic God, El, and the names of God that we use, especially the Tetragrammaton versus Elohim, that those are both usually considered names of God yeah. as opposed to God. So it'd be like saying, you want to the, the 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 mount of the the Joe, a double the, yeah. Um, so I don't know what to make of it, and I can't find any commentators who say anything here. Um, and I was looking on the other instances of Ha, uh, ha, uh, ha Elohim in in uh, in Torah and didn't didn't quite find it. But maybe I'll pursue it later and let you know what I find. My laning ear, which is. I'm not relying on it being comprehensive or even 100% accurate, tells me that when you have a structure where God is the subject of a verb, but it's a typical biblical structure where the subject comes after the verb, by Yikra Elohim, by Yisa Elohim, that it's Elohim. But occasionally, when you have God as the subject of a verb before the verb, the ha is added. So for instance, the beginning of the um, finding of Isaac, I think it's Veha Elohim, Nisa et Avraham. I don't think it's Ve'elohim. It's Ve'ha Elohim. And in that situation, God, the subject, is coming before the verb. And I would be interested to know, I wonder if there, if, if when it's, at least when God, God is, is the actor and the verb, is there, and, and as Elohim is being used and not the Tetragrammaton, is the placement of the noun, of the proper noun, before or after the verb, is there any pattern to whether or not the, the ha comes in? That's just a, I'm just hearing verses in my head when that comes to me. Um, but it's a really interesting question. What, what, 
what does it mean when you add a direct object to something which is already direct object? So, uh, sorry, not direct object. When you add a um, definitive article to something that is already definitive, right? right? I, I call on the Larry Herman, right? Larry Herman doesn't need the the. I can say I could call on the person, you know, uh, in, my, in my middle screen. But once I say Larry Herman, I don't need the the. So I'm, I'm honoring your question by saying I haven't thought of it, and I think it's a worthy inquiry. So I look forward to your paper. Rebecca Leonard. And Larry, see what Chizkuni says on it. <laughs> yes, Larry, check. He only, he only repeats Rashi, basically. Rashi Leonard. was obviously right then. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I have a question here on the uh, Unclus. Uh, okay. I mean, I'm not sure I understand what he's saying, but looking at the last part of it over there, it seems like he's talking about revelation while they're calling it Har Elohim, but correct that wrong. Onkelos doesn't quite use the language of the Midrash that says that it's being, it's, okay, let's look at Onkelos and then we'll figure out, is Onkelos agreeing with the Midrash or not? Um, Moses was shepherding with, or shepherding the sheep, of Yitro, Chamohi, his father-in-law, Rabba de Mijan, the leader of Mijan, Udvar Yat Ana, he drove Devar is an interesting Aramaic root here. It does not mean to speak as he, he drove, led. Um, yat, uh, yaana, levatar shvar raya, um, to, um, to a, a, a place, to, uh, to, to, um, uh, to, to beyond where it's a, a good pasture place, shvar raya, la madbara, to the midbar. Va'ata latura, he came to, I think Tura is a mountain in Aramaic. I'm not sure. The yes. Itgele uh, Alohi, um, that upon which would be revealed, Yikara Darunai, the glory of God, Lechorev, Kama Tchorev. So he, he's not weighing in on whether or not that this is the Torah being prescient versus the Torah simply being, this verse being named afterwards for what's going to happen, but it's the place upon which God's name, like Itkele is not future. Itkele is past in Aramaic. So it literally means on the mountain upon which God's glory was revealed. Maybe it's, maybe it's present. It's certainly not, it's certainly not future. So it's not written prophetically. It's written descriptively. Okay. Thank you. And uh, by the way, I'm volunteering to read this verse when you get to the next verse when you get there. Okay, I, I will accept that. Um, um, Marshall, before we go forward, can you, is there anything in your translation of the Unculus that sheds light on, on that line? Well, I can read both. You want both one and two, Red? Or just one? Just one for now. Okay. Now Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the chief of Midian. He led the flock to a good grazing site, to the wilderness, and came to the mountain upon which the glory of the Lord was revealed, to Chorev. Right. So was revealed. So, so it is. It's a past tense verb. Um, so I, listen, I don't think Uncleus is saying the editor changed it. Uncleus doesn't have that mindset. But it doesn't. It, it's not written. Rashi goes to pains to let us know that this is atid, future, will happen. And Uncleus in his translation does not, right? And Uncle is also reads it differently than Rashi in terms of um, what the batar means, 
Rashi says the batar means, uh, sorry, the achar means beyond what would be normally good grazing land so that Moshe doesn't commit any transgressions. Uncle says, no, he went to a spot that specifically was rich for pasture. Uh, Diane, Larry, is your hand up from before or now? Before. Okay. Marshall? Um, that, there is actually a footnote to the, word, to the phrase, to the mountain. Yeah. Uh, scripture contains the phrase, Har HaElohim, the mountain of God. Our Targumist prefers to translate it as, quote, the mountain upon which the glory of the Lord was revealed. Thus, he avoids giving the impression that a physical site, such as a mountain, possessed an intrinsic holiness, and that the omnipresent deity was restricted to a particular location. Again, he substitutes the tetragrammaton for the biblical Elohim. Huh. Um, look at, if you're in our books, look at the one right underneath Rashi, Ibn Ezra Ha'aruch, the long Ibn Ezra. I told you Ibn Ezra is the one who is sensitive to those few places in the Torah where there seem to be cracks in the, in, in the sheen of this being a single text that, is, that emerges in one moment. On the second line there, Har Elohim Choreva, Kacha Katav Moshe. An interesting way of saying it. This is how Moshe wrote it. It's almost as he's saying, when this was happening, before Moshe, the author of Torah, when the, when the event happened, is no way it was called Har, Har Elohim because it hadn't earned that name yet. But once, it's a little bit of an Escher painting because once <laughs> Moshe is receiving Torah at Sinai, and the reception of that Torah includes all the stories up until then, including this scene with Moshe. So Moshe is receiving Torah, including the recording of this scene. And by the time Moshe puts it down on parchment, as it were, Moshe writes this scene with Moshe's frame of mind, with Moshe's understanding. And what is this place according to Moshe? It's Har Elohim. So it's, 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 it's on the edge. Ebenezer's playing on the edge of, of, of our understanding as to when these words are emerging from God, right? And also um, scholars throughout history, both traditional medieval scholars and modern scholars play with this notion that there is a revelation from God, which is pure and perfect and pristine. And then it's mediated with human touch and human interpretation. And the moment that Moshe puts it in writing, as it were, it's already not the original. Um, It's already been impacted by um, by the by the human involvement. Barry, can't hear you yet. Barry, are you there? Going once. All right, here I am. Okay, uh, I'm a- asking your help. I'm looking at Swarno at the bottom, and um, what is he doing with Lahit Palel? Why is that in here? Swarno, uh, bottom left. So. He went to the mountain of God, uh, he went on uh, his own, to isolate himself. There you and, go. Right. And if you look at footnote 33, he says something interesting. This is Forno reading Achar Hamidbar very differently than Rashi did. At Son Nahag Achar Hamidbar, he drove the sheep way to the edge of the wilderness somewhere else. The Huba, but he individually came Choreva. So um, he's, he's reading this verse, interestingly, that don't read that 
Moshe drove the sheep to the same place he went to. Mm-hmm. What happens? He's out there shepherding, and he did two things. First, he took the ship, the sheep way over there to graze, comma. There's no comma in the verse. It's not even a net nachta there. It's just the end of a katon clause. But then he alone, Moshe, vayavo, singular, el har Elohim choreba. So, so this, this, this foreshadows what happens later where the people are left at the bottom and he goes separately to the place. Very interesting. Right. So the, 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 the people or sheep that he's leading are hanging out here and he individually, according to Sforno, is going to have this moment um, mm. to pray and to pray and to be alone in a place which we know, but he doesn't yet know, is going to be a significant place. Good. Mm. Thank, thank you for highlighting that. Rick. Uh, yes, the... Um... Vayavo, there's two, yeah, the Etnachta separates the first clause, and then the second clause has two parts to it, just like you said, and, and the trope, Vayavo is the Tavir again, that he came. So, um, yeah, it's, it's easy to separate the trope into two pieces there. Yes, it's, it's a soft pause. It's not an Etnachta, but it's, right. they're definitely disjunctive tropes. The Katon and Achar Midbar and Vayavo, right, if they were in... Yeah. Ahoy, there would still be a Begit, a, a Dagesh in the Begit Kefet of the second word, if any of that language means anything to you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's grant Leonard's uh, request. And will you please read verse um, two? And while you're reading, can you also answer whether or not you'll be available to lead a class a week from today? Because I will not be available a week from today. Am I unmuted? No, yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, uh, next week is the 23rd. Yeah, I should be around, sure. Um, uh, all right, we'll work, on, we'll work on making sure you can start the link um, later on. But class will be, but without me. Go ahead. Okay. Vayera Malach Adonai Elav Belabat Esh Mitoch all right. And um, the uh, angel of God appeared to him in a flame of fire uh, within the, the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not being consumed. It's exciting when you get to a verse that, that you know and you've been thinking about, that you've, you've learned when you were a child, and you get to it not because you chose to read it, but because you've been reading a text slowly and you, and you, and you get to this one. Right? It's, it's exciting to get this verse. Here we are at the burning bush. And we're going to take this verse apart because it means a lot of different things. And there are a lot of things that we already know about this verse, but there's things we're going to learn about it by going slowly. So, um, great translation. Labat uh, you How did you translate Labat? The, the flame of the fire? Well, I forgot what word you Flame of the fire. Flame of the fire. So, so that's one of the questions in the verse. What is Labat? Is Labat, um, is, it a, is it in Smichut? Is it, is it Labat such that the word, without it being in Smichut, would not have that tough at the end? Or is the tough part of the root. That's one of the questions on the verse. Throw out some other questions it might ask anyone on, on this verse in terms of its translation, syntax, and meaning. Joel. Yeah, why does it say hasne? I mean, this uh, is the first time we're referencing it. Good. So going back to 
um, the our, our ahas about ha, this the ha suggests there should be an antecedent to the snare, right? Unless it's a is it is this a proper noun? Is it the, the well known bush, right? Why the ha? Okay, good. Um, Diane, Larry, and then Tova. The first word of the pasuk and the first word after the atnachta. Written in the Torah, they're exactly the same. Very good. Okay. Everyone see that? That if you divide the verse into two, two halves, each verse, each half of the verse begins with the exact same letters, which would appear identical in the Torah. Vayera, Vayar. And what do you want to say about that? Or ask about it? Yeah, I want, I want, I want to know, how do we know that they are different? How do we know that the first one is Vayera, appeared, an angel, and the second one is Vayar, and he looked or he, he, he gazed, yeah. stared at. Good. So from the context, because we have the Elav, <laughs> first part, that, <clears throat> a, um, that, 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 that the angel is not doing the looking, but the angel is being seen. And in the second half of the verse, it seems that, that, um, uh, that Moshe is, um, is the one who is the active part of the verb. But it's also interesting that Moshe as the subject of Vayar is not mentioned. So Moshe is the implied carryover subject from the previous verse, such that when we get to Elav, to him, we know that it's Moshe. But Vayar, and usually when, when the Torah, um, the Torah bring, ha, has a verb with the subject of the verb not being the subject of the previous verb, the subject is... Uh, named or identified, unless it's a back and forth conversation between two people or between God and, and a person, in which case we understand that it's a, it's a dialogue. But we know that Vayar is Moshe, but you could make the argument that the last and he verb was the angel, right? The angel of God appeared to him within the bush, Vayar, and he saw. So we know that the he is Moshe, but the sentence doesn't provide that explicitly good uh, it doesn't make this doesn't make sense but is it possible that actually it's the it's the 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 angel who was who was in the burning bush who was looking at moshe the yar okay the the yar malach adonai alav at moshe from the burning bush belibat esh mitoch and that's it. Maybe the angel's looking at him. Right. I mean, anything is possible in the world of Midrash. I don't know if that makes sense because I don't know that uh, that Vayar ever takes an L. You, you uh, look like, like ro, you wrote, ro, ro, takes it to the direct object, et. I, I guess you could construct a sentence that way, but it, does, it, it, it doesn't feel familiar to me at all. Okay. Uh, I think... But your question does raise, your your question highlights why those verbs, right? So we, there are a lot of ways to suggest a divine presence. Not all of them is Vayera. And so the fact that there is a Vayera here, I think is significant because what's about to happen is a a Vayar. Meaning I, I think what you're pointing out is that it's not a coincidence that we have both those two verbs appear in this sentence. Um, Rick, Tova, and then um, Renee. 
Thanks. Um, you know, I'm into angels. So um, just a couple of uh, Midrashim that I found uh, to address Larry's thing. Uh, this is Midrash Rabbah um, in the flame of fire. At first, an angel acted as intermediary and stood in the center of the fire. And afterwards, the Shekhinah descended and spoke with him from the midst of the thorn bush. And the footnote there is the angel came to set him at ease, to set Moses at ease and prepared him for his first audience with God. Um, And then um, on the angel specifically, (laughs) Rabbi Yochanan said it's Michael and Rabbi Hanina said it's Gabriel, each deriving his opinion from a passage in Daniel and Ezekiel, I guess, respectively. So I had to throw that in there. So there you go. Thank you. Uh, Tova and then Renee. Uh, Rick addressed the questions that I had, so I'm I'm good. Renee. So Everett Fox said the same thing as uh, as Larry was saying that it it could either be uh, in the flame or as a flame. It brought up the same kind of thing as what Larry was saying, and also my question was how was it burned but not consumed. Good. So in all the conversations so far on, on, on this verse, kind of ikar chaser minasefer, we haven't asked the, the loudest question asked on this verse over time, which is, what, are we, what, what was he actually witnessing? Right? What does it mean to have a, you know, a flame not be consumed? And every director, whether it's you know, Cecil B. DeMille the, or the Prince of Egypt, has tried to figure out how to represent this. Right? Not, only, not only the meta question as to what does it mean, but what like in terms of what, what message is being conveyed by a, a bush being burning and not consuming, but what do the words actually mean? What are we supposed to be imagining in our mind when we see a sne and an ukal? And I would kind of double down that question. What does ukal mean, right? Aleph kaf lamed means to eat, which is why in English we turn this verb into a word that is synonymous with eating because, because consume is a great English word that means both to, to consume food, ochel, and to consume a resource, right? To consume something up. Um, and so maybe that's exactly what's happening in the Hebrew, but there are a lot of ways that the Torah could have described what was not happening to the snare, and not all of them required an eating. The word ukal itself is interesting. It's in the, the pu'al form, which is passive. Something happened to it. And this is very, very kind of, sharp, uh, sorry, fine distinctions in grammar. But if you look at Uncleus, the last um, phrase of Uncleus, the asana, the sne, laitohi, was not, mit achel, was not um, caused to be. Kids, but Uncleus puts it in, heat, in, in passive heat pael, as opposed to oh. pu'al. So it's, it's, it's so hard to do this in English, but the difference between um, hmm. The difference between eaten and somehow not caused to be having ha- having had itself be consumed, right? The, the the fact that he puts it into the heat pail hmm. suggests something happening to itself as opposed to ukal, which is just passive. So it might be nothing, but there was definitely a way in Aramaic to write ukal and keep it in that form. My, my translation shows being consumed, not being consumed. And then again, my translation showed not being consumed. 
been consumed. Not being consumed in the present tense. Was not about. Not, it's past present. Be, not being consumed. Oh, being, right. So um, Unc, uh, Ever Fox translates it this way. And Yahweh's messenger, he translated as messenger, not uh, angel, was seen by him. I love that Ever Fox keeps it, keeps the word see in there. It doesn't say revealed himself. Was seen by Yira in the flame of a fire out of the midst of a bush. Ever Fox says, pay no attention to that hay in front of the snare. He does not say the bush. He says a bush. <laughs> he saw, colon, here, comma, today. The bush is burning with fire. He keeps it in the present tense to suggest that what we're being told in this part of the verse is not, we're not being, we're not, it's not that we're having the scene described to us from a distance. We're now inside Moshe's reality and Mo, what's Moshe's experience? The bush is burning with fire. Bo air is a present tense verb. And the bush is not consumed, exclamation point, as if we're getting a thought blurb inside Moshe. Moshe is watching. It's not like we're being told that Moshe saw that the bush was not consumed. It says, reader, look at Moshe. What's Moshe experiencing? Moshe is experiencing that this bush is on fire and this bush is not consumed. Sue. Okay, sorry. Um, I have a couple of, of thoughts about this. One, when you said, what is the optics of this and what does it look like? And I was thinking about how it looks like my gas fireplace and the fake logs that is always on but never consumed. And what you can see in those, first of all, the, it, it's possible by the miracle of the gas line <laughs> that runs directly in, but that's a natural you know, I mean, natural gas that's causing the fire to go. But you can see inside the flame better. Like, you can see the logs, and you can see you, you see it differently than if it was a campfire fire, and it's really bright in there, and you can't really see the middle or anything. You can see stuff um, better in that flame where nothing is actually being consumed. So that was that, that's one thought I had about this. And the second thing that I was thinking about was the sneh. Um because we have these these bushes, we're big in the bushes. We we you know the Akedah had a, you know was was kind of um, enabled by the siach, um, and you know we've got this element of really key God moments having you know being kind of entangled in bushes, um, which is just kind of interesting. It's not the same word, but uh, I just thought, huh? Sneh yeah. and spach, right? The the, the thicket that the ram was in and the and, and this bush and um what we're we're probably not gonna get to it today because see what time it is we're gonna get to soon rashi's treatment of that word and why this particular type of, of fauna is significant and, and somebody read a translation that said thorn bush although thorn bush is much more like the akedah this wow. doesn't this just is like you know shrub right right a shrubbery maybe with monty python uh, Larry, Diane, then Marshall, then we'll call it a day. Sue is really onto something, but she didn't go in that direction. L- looking at your fireplace, if you didn't know someone had a fireplace that was that was artificial, and they saw the flame, and they would then see that the logs aren't burning up, and so then they would say, "There's a different source for that flame," hmm. and maybe that's what Moshe was doing. Obviously, Billy and my dog agree. Uh, he's looking at the at, he's looking at the fire, expecting it to be consumed because he's seen this before. 
And then he says, wow, the source of this fire itself is not the bush. The source is dot, dot, dot. Good. So there's really a lot to explore there. One of the commentators um, on this verse that we don't have on our page says, compare this verse to the um, verse in Tehillim, chapter 104, verse 4. What does it say in that um, verse? It describes God as Ose Malachav Ruchot, God who makes God's angel, uh, um, angels into like spirits, Mishartav Esh Lohet, and kind of um, um, leads them or serves them or, or appoints them with a, an Esh Lohet, with a flickering flame. And the reason why that verse is brought up is it, it seems to suggest there that Esh in that verse doesn't mean flame, but like spirit, like a fiery spirit, something different than scientifically fire, right? Meaning there are two very different ways of understanding this verse. Is this a miracle in that there's actually fire there, but it's not consuming, like the Amish fireplace or the fake fireplace, or is what he was seeing not fire? That sometimes God presents God's self with a spiritual fire, and what it is is not fire, right? There are things in our world, in their world, that look like fire but aren't fire. And those, those are actually two different ways of understanding what Moshe is experiencing. Fire that was actually fire and the miracle is that it wasn't being consumed. So, like, what's the point of that? Why, why would God show that? Or is this God showing God's self as a fiery thing, which does, just doesn't happen to be fire? It's a, it's a spiritual presence, right? And so, therefore, the reason why it's not um, consuming the bush is not because it's a miracle and that it's a fire that normally would consume it, but didn't, but, but what he was watching wasn't fire. Marshall, last comment, and then we're over time. I'll, I'll, I'll start at the beginning again. So right at the beginning, at the middle of the verse, the hasne bo'er So the hine means look, and then it says hasne bo'er ba'esh, and Alter translated, the bush was burning with fire. And I'm wondering about that, that last vav, vihasne. I know that vav is a conjunctive, is a conjunctive, but it does also mean but, in effect, like to draw a contrast. But the bush was not consumed. Yeah, right. Vav is both conjunctive and disjunctive. That's, that's the crazy thing about the way the vav is, is used in Hebrew, right? We don't really have that in English. And I mean, I guess you, you, with tone and voice, you can use the word and and have it be a disjunctive idea. Um, but the vav is translated as something and its opposite. Um, okay. And, and many things in between. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.